Well, good morning. Um, we will be in Psalm 121. It's a long ways from John 15, but it is what we'll find is intimately connected. These are passages that I think play well off each other um, and really will just fortify truths that we've already been studying. So, Psalm 121. I was joking around with Kelly this morning. I think I picked the best Sunday to teach because everyone's well rested, got an extra hour. So I think you'll be able to endure um, outside of Michael's teaching, which will be good. So um, once again, we're in Psalm 121, and uh, what we're starting to see in John 15 is that we are not of this world. I think it's something we've become aware of, um, not only through Sunday school, but also in our evening services as well with this study in the, the strange new world. Um, so what we find in John 15 is, is Christ declares that we are not of this world. Uh, Peter would call believers sojourners, um, aliens, or, or even exiles. And Paul tells us that what we dwell in now is, a, is an earthly tent. It's not our permanent home. It's, it's a temporary residence. Um, and I hesitate to even bring up this concept because we're yet to, to face the persecution and, and the harsh um, opposition that, that many in church history have. Um, yet the Bible uses such language, and I think we should. Even in our most recent passage in John, we were reminded um, of the world's opposition, and I think we're starting to see this close to home. Um, so I think this is a timely passage for us this morning. Um, and like many of you... Um, this study of the strange new world on Sunday evenings has even made this more vivid um, as we've seen how tracing the philosophical thought and, and how everything has now come to the face of the truth, um, and not only the truth, but, but Christ's church. So we cannot hide from the evidence that we truly are dwelling in a strange land, whether we turn on the TV or stand at the water cooler. It's clear that this world is growing in opposition to Christ and his teachings. So brothers and sisters, we are living in a foreign land. This is where passages like Psalm 121 are are so helpful. Um, For here we find a traveler, a pilgrim. I think this is an image we all can can resonate with us. Uh, A pilgrim that provides for us a model of how we can place our gaze where it needs to be especially when we are tempted to despair. George Zimmick says it well, um, our blessed professor and founder of TES, actually. Uh, He says about this psalm, it instructs us to comfort ourselves in the Lord by sharpening our spiritual vision. So once again, this, this psalm is to comfort ourselves in the Lord by sharpening our spiritual vision. So as you can see at the top of the psalm, this is a song of ascents. Uh, in Hebrew, this, this word ascent actually has a connotation of a pilgrimage, uh, or more specifically in this context, an upward movement towards Jerusalem. So we can think of this song, not to oversimplify it, we can think of this song as a one song on an album meant for a road trip. So I think we can all uh, relate to that, but this road trip for, for these Israelites was to Jerusalem. And the album really consists of Psalms 120 through Psalm 134. 
So look with me briefly at Psalm 120, actually. So we're going we're gonna to start there. And usually this isn't necessary for the Psalms to build context, but I do think here there's a progression um, from Psalm 120 all the way through Psalm 122. Uh, that's helpful. So look, look with me at Psalm 120, verse 5. And the psalmist says, Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshech, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long has my soul been dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. So starting in verse 5, the psalmist mentions Meshech and Kedar. This is a region that encompasses the known pagan territory of the time. It summarizes what can be understood as the entirety of the Gentile world, in which much of Israel had been dispersed. This is where our traveler in Psalm 121 is departing from. So now jump over our psalm to Psalm 122, and you will see a traveler's final destination, which is Jerusalem. So once again, turn with me to, you probably won't have to turn, to Psalm 122. So starting in verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel. So in verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 122, you will see this joyous arrival in Jerusalem, this place where their God was worshipped and where his people congregated before him. I think it's helpful to think of Jerusalem in this context as an embassy of sorts, It's a place that's familiar to them. It's a place where even people from a far land can come and they can find security and safe haven. And as I mentioned earlier, this psalm of ascent would have been recited or sung with a heart of anticipation. What an exciting journey this must have been for these Israelites. Yet their path was often treacherous, having rough terrain and a real possibility of ambush. Um, So although this was exciting, it was also a very dangerous trek. Uh, Some of these folks would have been traveling from hundreds of miles or um, thereabouts. Having not yet arrived in Jerusalem, in amid harsh conditions, their heart of joyful anticipation could have easily been turned to fear. It is at the outset of this journey that we find this psalm. So look with me now at Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil, and he will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. So we could stop there. We could just call it this morning, and that would probably be encouraging enough. But I do think this is going to be such a fruitful 
time for us to walk through these eight verses. Um, and I think to help us understand the whole psalm, we can break it really down into two kind of macro sections. The first one being verses 1 and 2, and it's there that we see the pilgrim's supreme helper. So verses 1 and 2, we see this pilgrim's supreme helper. And in verses 3 through 8, we have this helper described even in more detail, and we can think of that as the pilgrim's supreme keeper. Um, Two terms that I'm sure sound similar, but at the same time, I do think there's a nuance that this psalm will draw out for us. So first, look with me again at verses 1 through 2, and we will see the pilgrim's supreme helper. In verse 1, the pilgrim acknowledges an insufficient help. This notion of looking to the mountains could be explained as paranoia or a distressed looking, uh, for these travels would be aware of the many dangers surrounding them. Yet it is more likely that he is looking to the high places where the idols were often placed, these false idols. On this journey, these false places of worship would be passed and often surrounded those traveling below. So I think this is helpful for us because we can, we can picture this ourselves. We're traveling on this long journey. He's looking to the high places and seeing these false places of worship, these false and insufficient helps. It is in this environment that the pilgrim asks, from where should my help come from an appeal appeal to a superior help, something outside of himself. Many would look up to these high places of false worship for their help, but not this pilgrim. He asked the question he already already knows the answer to. The answer is not found in man-made idols, but in the maker of all things. So listen to his answer here in in verse 2. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. So notice with me the simplicity of his answer. I think it's so helpful um, in a, I think in a culture where we try to make things far too complex. His answer is rather simple. His help comes solely from the Lord. It reminds me of what David said in Psalm 62. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for us. My soul, wait in silence for God only. So David's talking to his own soul here. He says, my soul, wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from him. He is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. So whether this traveler is looking at his surroundings because he is fearful of physical dangers or if he's gazing at the false idols placed above him, Derek Kidner is helpful when he says that despite which it is, he knows something better. The thought of this verse leaps beyond the hills into the universe, beyond the universe to its maker. Here is a living help, primary, personal wise, and immeasurable. The writer answers his own question powerfully, for he acknowledges a fundamental truth of utmost importance if the reader is to grasp the gravity of the remaining verses. Their helper and ours owns everything and created all simply by the word of his mouth. 
The psalmist's answer in verse 2 is an obvious one for our perspective. We would expect the same answer if we were asked that ourselves. But it is an interesting answer. The conviction found here speaks to a crucial truth that we can have faith in God's individual acts of deliverance because he is the maker of it all. We would be tempted to search for and cling to insufficient helps, especially amid the growing opposition. Heed to the psalmist's instruction here and cling to our only hope and our only help. And the psalmist doesn't leave us without good reason to trust him. And I think that's what I love about Scripture most. There's never a command, there's never an instruction that's not apart from a compelling and convincing reason why we should do so. This brings us to the second description of the Lord. In the first two verses, the psalmist briefly described for us the pilgrim's supreme helper. And now he will spend the remainder of this psalm describing the pilgrim's supreme keeper. So look at me at verse 3, and we're going to find out exactly why we should trust in this God who is so intimately involved in our lives. In verse 3 through 8, the Hebrew word shamar is peppered throughout. It is seen at the end of verse 3, beginning of verse 4, verse 5, twice in verse 7, and verse 8. This word could be understood as, and you'll see this in your translations kind of all over the board. This word could be understood as keeping, guarding, protecting, watching. In your translations, it may be rendered several different ways. Yet, I found it's, it's helpful to lean into this repetition. I think the psalmist is using this same word in the Hebrew text for a reason. Um, and we've got to remember these songs would have been recited. They would have been sung. And it would have been so repetitious, I think it would have been helpful for the traveler. So lean into that repetition there. Um, and you'll see, at least in, in my translation, the NASB, I have keeper, um, protect, guard. Um, and then there's even the identification of the Lord as your keeper. In verse 3 through 8, can be understand, we can understand it as three descriptions of the Lord's care. So within this macro section, we have three descriptions of the Lord's care. In verses 3 through 4, we will find his care is extensive in scope. Extensive in scope. So first, let us look at verses 3 through 4. And here the psalmist will explain this further. In the original Hebrew, verse 3 is written actually as a negate of Joseph. And I know that probably means absolutely nothing to most of you. But it is a helpful nuance. And all this means is that the verse, verse 3, should be expressed more as a desired outcome um, or a petition. Uh, therefore, it could be read, and, and honestly, probably should be read, as may he not allow your foot to slip, and may he who keeps you not slumber. Now, of course, verse 4 follows this with, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. An expression not of petition, but in verse 4 we see a declarative statement of fact. So there's a shift to second person here as well, which indicates this section is meant to exhort the individual. If you look at the remainder of the psalm, verses 3 through 8, there's a series of he and you statements. These are declarations of what the Lord will fulfill in the lives of his people. 
In verse 3, he appeals to the pilgrim's foot. This is a notion that would have been particularly important for those on a pilgrimage for obvious reasons. For footing is of utmost importance on a journey through the mountainous terrain they must have been traveling on. To demonstrate the Lord is capable of guarding this traveler's steps, the psalmist goes in to acknowledge the reality that the Lord preserves not only his feet, but he, in, he preserves all of his people. So look with me at verse 4, and we'll read there, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The psalmist here rationalizes with the reader using a greater to lesser argument, something we've already seen by Paul in Romans 5. In the midst of a pilgrimage themselves, the writers ask these Israelites to dwell in the preservation of an entire nation. Israel's departure from Egypt and arrival in the Promised Land provides a great illustration of what a much larger pilgrimage in which the Lord was faithful to sustain them. Furthermore, in these verses we are given a comforting thought. Our keeper is not like us. <laughs> this for me was particularly helpful. Um, I think we, we tend to have small thoughts about God. Um, we think his disposition towards us is one like our own. And it's not. Um, he cannot be more unlike us when it comes to his alertness, his uh, vigilance. And we're going to see this as we move forward. The psalmist declares in verse 4, the one who keeps Israel will not slumber, nor will he sleep. The idea of slumber refers to indifference or a lapse in attentiveness, and sleep obviously implies a complete unconsciousness and an inability to respond. Two conditions that the Lord will never be susceptible to. Our keeper is vigilant, even more vigilant than our most alert parents here this morning. And there's a lot of them. <laughs> now, I'm aware that I'm speaking to folks this morning well acquainted with lack of sleep. Um, I think our baby showers are a great indication of that. Yet, I'm sure we're um, also all reminded of how much we need it daily. For daylight savings time is practically a national holiday. This truth, we, this truth, the truth is that we grow weary. We let down our guard and often slip into moments of negligence. Yet in relation to us, the Lord does not sleep. He does not even slumber. This means that his lack of sleep has no effect on his inability to remain alert. He is always standing attentive at his post, always mindful of our condition. In verses 3-4, we are reminded of the Lord's care is extensive in scope. We saw that in his faithfulness in the, the nation of Israel. Now we look to verses 5 and 6, and we will come to our second description of the Lord's care. It is intimate in application. Verses 5 and 6, it is intimate in application. Now, Kidner draws out a shift here, saying that Israel's privilege is made sure to a single Israelite in these verses. Extensive truths now become intimate truths. Beginning in verse 5, through the end of the psalm, Yahweh is the name chosen for our God. This is the covenant-keeping title for the Lord. And to the original reader, this sort of jumped off the page. This title is used four times in the last four verses. 
This is a powerful portion of the psalm and a great encouragement to the weary traveler. In verse 5, the Lord, and follow this with me. I think this is really where the psalmist is going. In verse 5, the Lord, who is the maker of all things, we saw that earlier, and who keeps the nation of Israel, is also your keeper. This is an illustrated with imagery of shade. This notion is often understood as the shadow of God himself. And this can be seen in verse 5. This same language is used in Psalm 17 and Psalm 36 as the one who trusts in the Lord hides in the shadow of his wings. Or in Psalm 91, one finds protection in his shadow like that of a shelter. Shade would have resonated with this pilgrim in the Middle East, for sun not only caused discomfort, but it had the capacity to deplete the traveler of his strength. This shade is provided for the right hand of the traveler, likely in speaking to the sustaining power of the Lord amid harsh conditions, conditions, no doubt. As we move on to verse 6, we are told that the Lord's intimate care doesn't stop with shade by day, but his protection continues into the night. Because our keeper neither slumbers nor sleeps, as we saw in verse 4, he can keep us even through the night. So we now know the pilgrim is protected in a profound way. And to summarize, he is protected above from the sun. His feet are protected from slipping. And from the known by day and the unknown by night. This is an exhaustive care, one that we really can't comprehend. David tries to reflect on this comforting truth, uh, I think in the best way with human words. When he says in Psalm 3, I lay down and I slept, and I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. In the very next psalm, in Psalm 4, he says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. We have now seen the Lord's care is extensive in scope, that is intimate in application, and now as the song continues, we are promised his care results in ultimate deliverance. And this is seen in verses 7 through 8. As the song comes to a close, the pilgrim is given a series of profound promises. First is that the Lord will protect him from all evil. We see this as a petition given at the end of the Lord's Prayer as Christ instructs his disciples. We all are familiar with this. He tells us to ask the Father to not lead them into temptation, but to deliver them from evil. Furthermore, Christ himself prays in John 17, which we'll see hopefully in a few years. Right, Michael? I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. We will come to that passage soon. I'm sure it'll be very soon. John 17, when Christ prays to the Father that he would not, actually, that he would not take us out of the world, but that he would keep us from evil, or better yet, the evil one. So these are truths that extend all the way into even where we're at now in John's gospel. This promise in verse 7 is ultimately a promise of deliverance from spiritual devastation. Although we may face the discomforts and dangers 
common to all those walking this difficult path of life. He will protect us from ultimate collapse. This truth is clarified further as the psalmist continues, and as we'll see at the end of verse 7, he will keep your soul. Now we must understand that a life free from affliction and opposition is not promised to God's people. Um, it actually marks God's people in most, most situations. Verse 1 of Psalm 120, where we spent a little bit of time earlier, even makes this clear in verse 1. The psalmist says, In my trouble I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. Psalm 121 in verse 1 Um, The acknowledging of help implies that there's something the pilgrim needs help from. So we must not take these overarching truths which are helpful, but at the same time we must not go beyond what all of Scripture says because there's more to be said here, and we've even seen in John 15 that we will face opposition. But what we see at the end of this psalm is not, not a promise free from trouble or affliction, but a promise of ultimate deliverance. So in his remarks regarding this portion of the psalm, Derek Kidner is helpful. And he says, The promise moves here in Psalm 121 from the pilgrim's immediate preoccupations to cover the whole of existence. In light of other scriptures, to be kept from all evils does not imply a cushioned life, but a well-armed one. I think that is so helpful, um, is that our circumstances may be less than what we like them to be, but we're well armed, uh, and we have a helper that that is above it all. So the word soul here at the end of verse seven refers to the whole of the person, that which is immortal and will exist eternally. Once again, this talk of ultimate deliverance is a promise also seen at the conclusion of Psalm thirty-four. Um, I think it'd be helpful if we all turn there. Um, Because this is such a helpful passage in the context we're in. Psalm 34. And if you look at the end of this psalm, um, if we had time we'd read the whole thing, but we're going to read the very end of this psalm, and I think it's so helpful. Verse 19 is where we'll start. So see how this starts. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So there's a promise. (laughs) But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. We're going to come up on this in Romans 8, verse 1. It's going to be the similar language for us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As if this promise of soul-keeping wasn't enough, verse 8 gives us a full assurance of our security, leaving no room for despair. It is here that those who trust in the Lord are promised thorough care for this life and for all of eternity. At the beginning of verse 8, it is said that our keeper will guard or keep your going out and your coming in. So once again, this is truly an exhaustive care. 
to us, these mundane movements of our lives, um, things we would declare insignificant in the eyes of God, of such a powerful God, are, are watched intently by him. Our coming and going, our sitting and standing, our sleeping and rising, are all under the vigilant gaze of our keeper. To this reality, I resonate with David's response as he gazed in the night sky and said, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Although the Lord's care in this life is breathtaking, what may be most comforting of all is that his care extends past the grave. For the psalmist adds an exclamation mark to this psalm when he declares that the Lord will keep from this time forth and forever. This promise of eternal deliverance is vital for us to remember that the writer of Hebrews says, and he says it well, for here do we not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. So brothers and sisters, it's, it's true. Uh, we now reside um, in a place that is not our ultimate home. Like this pilgrim traveling from a distant land, there is a real tension when we long for our final destination. But we have not yet arrived. And the temptations are many, and I think we're all feeling this now. And this is why we need to prepare, because I don't think we're quite um, to a place of of harsh persecution. I don't know that we're there yet. Um, But I think all those in church history would exhort us, if they could, to prepare to prepare our hearts and minds. And the temptations are going to grow. Temptations to grow anxious, to seek help from insufficient sources. We're even seeing this in the church. Or to seek control of our circumstances that are beyond us, which is just going to end in frustration. So the psalmist here instructs us not to change our circumstances, not to lighten the load, not to seek a comfortable life. Um, But as we saw at the beginning of our time together, as Dr. Zimmick said, to sharpen our spiritual vision. We have a front row seat of these reassuring promises as we continue to walk through Christ's upper room discourse in John's gospel. So be encouraged. These promises are reiterated by Christ himself. These promises of old have been fulfilled in Christ, and his disposition towards us is that of a a good shepherd, as we saw in John 10, a great high priest we see in Hebrews 7 and in John 17 as he intercedes for us, and a redeemer that will himself will himself raise us up on the last day, as we saw in John 6. So in closing, I find the words of Jude fitting for our study this morning. And this is how he ends his epistle. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Let us pray. Father, we, uh, we need to be recalibrated often. Our minds are so susceptible to 
drifting from truth to fret over our circumstances, over what could be looming in our future. But like this pilgrim, Lord, in Psalm 121, help us to ask the rhetorical question, where does our help come from, and to answer it with truth. Lord, I pray that we would meditate on these truths today. Uh, And as Michael teaches through John 15 this morning, help us to understand that this abiding must continue in our lives, but that you also are already abiding in us. So let us be comforted, Lord, um, but also I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, Lord, and and to prepare our minds during this time to look to you, to not look to insufficient helps, but, Lord, to, to rest on the truth of your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it.